Truth is the authority. All right, first thing, bring your A game because I'll take nothing less. I mean, we don't need more regulations. We need far less of that. We're going to have an open and honest discussion, but the numbers are what matter. The facts matter. Forget about the Republicans and the Democrats for a minute. Let's talk about the people. I've lived the American dream, and I want so many more people to be able to live the American dream. My show is what it says. It's common sense. We've jettisoned political correctness. It's principles and policies that work for everybody. I just want to talk about how to fix this country. The David Webb Show. Now, earlier we discussed uh, various aspects of uh, dealing with the Biden policies and the the current policies when it comes to China with Peter Morisi. Moving that along, uh, my next guest, a regular guest on the show from the Mercatus Center, Dr. Weifen Zhang, says the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympic is a strong signal to China over its human rights abuses and other atrocities. But history shows that symbolic gestures like that are unlikely to change authoritarian behavior. It might even give the Chinese propaganda ammunition to cultivate anti-American sentiment domestically, again, within China. So what are the policies that are truly needed? What could be or have the potential to be more effective? We've talked before about the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and others, and they are, yes, policies and things that can help in some way. And Dr. Zhang, I, you know, I started with the, the boycott, and I know you and I discussed this before, but I want to reiterate my position on this. The absence of America, you talk about propaganda for China. The Chinese are going to use it for propaganda. The MFA will use it no matter what. Boycott diplomatically, show up, not show up, in whatever way. They're masters at it. So I'm less concerned about the Chinese use of it, not that I'm not concerned, but to the world, the absence of America could also be a powerful tool and All other arguments about the athletes and the work, I get all of that. But we're in a position where the bigger action, for me, outweighs the Chinese use of it. What do you say to that? David, thanks for having me on the show, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. uh, I thought about this question um, a lot, too, because in terms of changing, we discussed this before, in terms of whether it would change Chinese behavior, it's quite unlikely. But I agree that it is a moral thing to do to at least diplomatically boycott the Olympic and to make a, a strong statement or send a strong signal. The, my concern was really that, yes, it demonstrated that our values are, um, you know, the force labor practices against our values. And it would be even better if America's allies are also boycotting the Olympics. But the people who will see that, see the demonstration of the demo- uh, democratic values, would only be uh, people in the in the free societies. So people in China are still not going to see that as much. That's my sort of hold back on uh, on that point. Now, see, you, you're I, I think you're accurate 
in that representation within China. Here's where I go, call it next level on this. And when you look at various indicators of who, you know, diplomatic boycotts of the Winter Olympics this coming February, other nations have joined uh, Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom. See, China doesn't care. China uses it, but they don't care. The diplomatic boycott is fluff. It's important fluff to some extent in the diplomatic circles. But we on the West, outside of China, those who favor freedom, can have a bigger weapon to use with absence. Because as much as Hua Shunying and the MFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and their actors and activists and around-the-world influencers can push through English language or other language efforts and social media... The West can also, if they're willing and not too tied to China by their economic power that they've exhibited and the ties they've created, can use this weapon of the absence. There, sometimes a vacuum is a good thing, or at least a good image, that you can then weaponize to say and keep the conversation going, why were we not there? That's why I think that position is the right one. I think you're right on that. In, in fact, we can think of uh, how many allies are boycotting the Olympics together with the U.S. as a good indicator of how far the U.S. has gone in terms of, you know, working with allies. Because that's sort of one of the most, uh, one of the biggest thing the Biden administration advertised at the very beginning, right? So they say they sort of touted their abilities uh, to work with allies. So. This could be a good test about how much you can work with allies on something that's so morally correct to do. And so I think that would yeah. be a good test. And, uh, but I, I, I think still, though, it, even, though we could, even if we could rally allies around certain co- uh, cause, uh, I think there would be more meaningful things to do in terms of actually initiating changes than uh, diplomatic gestures. For example, the U.S. could work with allies in terms of legislation, uh, countering, you know, for example, importations of goods made with forced labor. And that's the topic you mentioned. And uh, the Uyghur forcing, uh, pre- forced labor prevention law was act was just signed into law by the president just before the holidays. And things like this, I think, would make in a factual impact larger than a diplomatic uh, demonstration. Not, not that the, the latter is not worthy of doing uh, which i think it is I, I think but i think we need to keep our attentions uh keep, keep our attention on something that's more uh in, in terms of policy potentially could be more effective yeah, let's let's flush this out together why why i enjoy our conversations because we 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 try to go more in context i believe in combined strategies whether you're fighting war or whether it's peace between wars, moral conflict, if you take the philosopher's approach to it when it comes to war or economic warfare, psychological, even legislative, right? The the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and others. I think it's a combination of factors. And in a sense, it could be a butterfly effect beginning, right, where we start with a complete boycott. We have the labor, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. We work to do other things in other areas. And I'm 
not that I wouldn't love to have allies along. Fact is, I'm less concerned about the allies, but more the effect of beginning and using a combined strategy to tackle China in multiple areas and, and to send a signal that someone's willing to fight. And I think America can stand on the flag in this case, the flag of freedom, and say, these are the things we're doing you to the world can choose not to. You can stand by. You can make your nice statements. But we're going to stand against this. We're going to stand with a Taiwan against China's one uh, China policy. We're going to stand with India when it comes to China taking Indian territory and renaming it. And it's a multiple things. China's fighting on multiple fronts. We seem to be too singular or linear at times. I, th- I think you're right on that, but my so my concern would be that so let's contemplate a scenario in which the Olympic goes on, the Olympic Games go uh, goes on, and then the Americans are the only uh, ones who are not coming. And imagine that uh, you know the British, you know even Indians, and they're they're all in the game except for the Americans. That optics I think would not demonstrate the value as much because it would easily be by the Chinese as propaganda for, say, this is um, uh, America trying to contain China's rise because... But, but they're they going are, to do uh, that anyway, right? We, we know that China is going to use it whether we're there or not when they win a medal. We've seen them play the medal game with the headlines, right? Who won the medal, who didn't? So they're going to use something. This is, this is where I think we need to change our strategy and take another tact because prior tacts like the long-running six-party talks, right? If it doesn't work, sooner or later, you've got to try something else. You've got to adjust. We also need to weaponize it. And here's my concern. I don't think, I think you and I and others in this country and others around the world who are reasonable can you know talk about it but this administration will not lead in weaponizing our absence by saying we stand for freedom and we will not participate in a nation that commits genocide against its own people we have a platform we have to have the will to use it i i yeah i i totally agree and and in in that backdrop i think it's actually almost comical and sad to see that uh, after the diplomatic boycott, there uh, we we still uh, it still came to light in the news that some U.S. officials are still going and they are applying for U.S. visa, uh, sorry, uh, Chinese visas to to enter uh, uh, to go into China and go into the game to to work with the athletes there for uh, some visa purposes or other diplomatic reasons. So there are still officials going. They're not attending the ceremony, but they are still going. So I, I think even on a diplomatic um, sort of uh, signal sending, it's not to the maximal uh, or optimal extent. On that point, I I agree with you totally. But I, I do, I, I think where we uh, sort of disagree a little bit is that I think the value of allies working together on that, uh, it's uh, very important because that's what uh, distinguishes us, the open world, the, the West free societies, uh, uh, the difference between that and the closed regime like China. You know, I, I want to put something into this. And, you know, your point about allies, uh, you know, and it's an important one, I understand. But when your allies fail you, Dr. Zong, you stand alone. 
when principle and right is there and the risk is not a war, which this is not a risk of a war. There will be economic consequences. There will be lots of diplomatic talk and Catherine Tai will go and speak to her counterpart, our trade ambassador and more. But when you go to the U.S. Embassy in China website, what's the first thing you see? At the top of the page, travel advisory level three, reconsider travel to the People's Republic of China, PRC, due to arbitrary enforcement of local laws. Reconsider travel to the PRC's Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, SAR, S-A-R, due to both arbitrary enforcement of local laws and COVID-19 related trans, uh, travel restrictions. Now, there's more to that. If someone wants to go there, you just have to search U.S. Embassy in China comes up with the Web page. So our very own embassy brings up both the legal and the medical risk, right, of travel to China. But at the same time, our diplomats, this administration, and those in positions to influence do the counter. They do the opposite. Well, I think that it is a legitimate risk, actually, now to travel to China and to Hong Kong in light of the crackdown there especially the closing of uh, certain news, uh, pro-democracy newspapers. And so I- even if Americans travel to Hong Kong, uh, there is a substantial risk now, now that they might be rounded up and uh, sent to mainland China for prosecution if uh, the, the Americans we are talking about are expressing views that uh, China does not like. So I, I think I mean, that, that's a legitimate risk there. But it, it, I mean, when I think about Hong Kong, this is going back to the ally versus standing alone. I think uh, I, I was impressed by Americans, uh, America's allies in terms of they making a, a gesture or at least sending signals during the crackdown, the Chinese crackdown on Hong Kong. For example, for example, the United Kingdom took in a lot of um, protesters, uh, young protesters from Hong Kong because of the, uh, the crackdown in China. Uh, in the aftermath of the crack, uh, of the protest there, Try, they tried to catch those uh, protesters, and uh, the United Kingdom welcomed them with open arms. I think th- this is the kind of the, the very morally valuable thing uh, that uh, U.S. allies are doing as well. I, I, in fact, I think the U.S. should do more of that uh, on that front. Those are those are good symbols, important symbols. The net effect on China, China marches forward. And, you know, if you lose a few of the people that are protesting against you, it also can give you an element of more control. We just we just have a situation that is a repetition of I don't know if I want to call it ongoing, but ineffectual policy approach or diplomatic approaches. And we have an opportunity here to stand out from the crowd. And yes. It will have consequences. But at some point, while the Chinese play the long game, the Chinese Communist Party, to be more exact, uh, we're not even using in the United States effectively some of the symbols and things that we see going on. I have brought up before that now Shen Yun billboards say China before communism. Why are we not engaging the Chinese community, if you will, of which there's a large expat community, not only in the U.S., but you look at Australia, New Zealand. I have friends who have left China, children that were their parents got them out of China. 
for that reason to be educated think- elsewhere and use that and weaponize it by saying these are free communities, these Chinatowns all over the world, uh, that many of them are in free societies. I agree with you, David, on that 100%. In fact, that's an example, the U.S. failure to work with uh, Chinese communities in in the United States who have the same values uh, uh, like like we do. And I think the failure there demonstrated the, the danger of uh, not striking the right balance between our society's openness versus uh, versus the uh, the demand for better national security when it comes to China. Because if you have this sort of across-the-board uh, anti-Asian sentiment, for example, right? And so then we would basically alienating uh, other Asian Americans who actually share the same values and they could work with us uh, in, in terms of, you know, countering Chinese behavior. Because not all Chinese people are <laughs> uh, working for the Chinese regime, right? I, I know some of them are, but some of them are not. And it's important to distinguish that and, and that would make our efforts more uh, effective. Yeah, which is why I constantly make the point, this is not about China. It's a beautiful country. I wish I could travel and experience the, the history, the legacy. There's such amazing things there. Uh, but it's the Chinese Communist Party and their efforts that have literally taken over and controlled the lives of billions and affect billions around the world. Uh, this is a fight against communism, uh, which expands into our America's uh, uh sphere, if you will, with the growth of socialism and Marxism in countries like Chile, Peru, uh, Honduras, electing a socialist, Venezuela, you look at China and other actors there, uh, they're expanding while we're repeating ineffectual strategies. Absolutely. And I think that there's an important um, difference, distinction here between the U.S.-China conflict versus the uh, Cold War with the Soviet Union. Because so on the moral dimension, it's the same thing. It's the Communist Party, it's an unfree regime. And for example, back then, the Soviet people, uh, uh, Russian people in Soviet Union, were never the enemies uh, either, right? And so the moral dimension is exactly uh, the same. But the economic dimension is very different because uh, the Chinese economy is so much larger in the historical context relative to the Soviet Union's economy. And so that, that's what gave China a lot of leverage in terms of influencing other countries, especially poorer countries. And they pre, the Chinese would present them with a trade-off between, you know, if you work with us, you get a lot of money and you shut up on human rights. Or if you uh, speak out on human rights, you, you lose all this money. And that's a, a powerful weapon that the Soviet Union did not have. And this is going circling back to the working with allies uh, point that because this trade-off presented by, by the Chinese can be sometimes so convincing, it makes it ever more important for the U.S. to work with those potential and uh, actual allies so that they don't go to the Chinese side because uh, the, 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 it could be tempting to take that trade. Yeah, we need to tell the story as we wrap up here more often of how China imposes its influence. And I'll use Italy as one, the seventh nation to join the Belt and Road Initiative. Following that, there was an influx of illegal alien Chinese and legal, if you will, Chinese labor into Italy. So for people listening who are buying your your high-end Italian uh, leather and goods and services, 
guess what? A lot of those factories, when you dig a little deeper, who's working there, where are they working, who's making money? You look at the 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 the, the you know incentive to make money and what China's influence is in in something in another country. Italy's a good example. More people need to look at things like that and see how China expands its influence through both illegal and legal migration and capturing parts of industries that like the cheap labor and like the rich outcome in the return on profits. Right. And in fact, you could say the same with iPhone as well, right? Because yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Many parts of which are made uh, by Chinese labor, and most most of them are living in China. So, uh, so it's true for many high end products. And 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 to me, I think that speaks to the the value of economic value of engagement with China. Is is that we now can afford uh, iPhones that would otherwise have been much more expensive. But yeah, and we can't divest of them that equally or that easily, which, you know, look, I have products here made in China. Unfortunately, you can't look at every label, uh, every piece of equipment, whatever is printers, computers, iPhones, like you say. Uh, that will be a long strategy. And to your point, I think the most important point people need to hold on to is the difference in economic uh, strength between the then Soviet Union uh, and China. China and Mao's China exhibited and grew economic strength, drew people in, built it, and now the divestiture will be a decades-long process, if ever. I, I agree, yeah. And so, so I think we have to separate that with the dealing with Chinese influence which is oftentimes legal, as you say. And that's, that's a very key point because a lot of Chinese operations, influence operations in the United States, they're within legal boundaries. And oftentimes we just don't know about it because they are legal activities. But in fact, they are gradually compromising our values. And we, we don't have the full picture of exactly how Chinese influence is affecting our, our day-to-day life. So I think the first step is actually to, to know that and to get the full picture of it before coming up with effective policy solutions. And then also, because I'm David Webb, seize the moment when it's in front of you. But I stand by my position on the Olympics. Dr. Zong, always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for joining me. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, David. Thank you. I'll be right back.